Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. If you enjoy Southern Mysteries, you can hear more when you join me on Patreon. As an independent podcast, your support makes it possible for Southern Mysteries to continue. This is a show staffed by one person, by me. I do all the researching, writing, recording, editing, producing, and marketing of Southern Mysteries. Your support helps cover the expense to create Southern Mysteries and for this show to continue. And I thank you so much for that. As a thanks for joining in on Patreon, there are options to hear ad-free episodes of the show, access more than 60 episodes of the Southern Mysteries archives, and previous patron-exclusive podcasts. Plus, you can hear the new patron-exclusive Audacious podcast, which features scandalous and shocking crimes in U.S. history. Special thanks to my generous new patrons who help make this show possible. Rachel from Gilderland, New York. Karen from Shreveport, Louisiana. Sharon from Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Amy from Grove Hill, Alabama. Kathy from Myrtle, Mississippi. Paige from Mommy, Ohio. Brody from Louisville, Mississippi. Denise from Pine Tops, North Carolina. Kanya from Westerville, Ohio. And Amy from Cincinnati, Ohio. And to my new supporters listening from mysterious locations, Courtney, Leslie, Joy, Robin, Jared, Claudia, Amy, Rhonda, and Kareen. Thank you. Your support means so much, and I hope you enjoy catching up and listening to all the stories available to you as patrons. Now, for anyone who would like to support the show and help me continue to create Southern Mysteries, you can join now and immediately start listening to stories you can't hear anywhere else at patreon.com slash Southern Mysteries. Savannah is Georgia's first city and one of America's most haunted. In February 1733, General James Oglethorpe and 120 passengers on the ship Anne landed on a bluff along the Savannah River. Oglethorpe named America's 13th and final colony in honor of King George II. Savannah was strategically laid out in a series of grids with wide streets and 24 public squares. 22 of those squares still exist in the graceful old city with its signature cobblestone streets and moss-covered trees. Savannah's Atlantic port served as a transportation and mercantile hub for plantations in the region. It's also been the source of turbulent chapters in the city's history. During the American Revolution, the British took Savannah and maintained control of the city from 1778 until 1782. That control gave the British maritime power in their quest to conquer all of Georgia and gain control of South Carolina. After much blood was shed, French and American troops reclaimed Savannah's independence. Savannah endured devastating fires in the late 18th and early 19th century during the Civil War, General Sherman gained control of Savannah, and once again, war left its mark on the city that somehow managed to endure, fight back, and rebuild. As the city grew, 
it expanded, and that came with a price. New structures built on burial grounds. When you visit Savannah's historic district and stroll her quaint squares, at some point, you are walking on the dead. From Native American burial grounds to slave burial sites and mass graves from war and yellow fever outbreaks, those who have died during turbulent times in the city's history or have been forgotten with time, unable to rest in peace. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of haunted Savannah, the city that lives upon her dead. When General Oglethorpe landed in Georgia, his mission was to pave the way for England's working poor to have a fresh start. Increased trade was part of the vision to sustain the colony. General Oglethorpe befriended the Yamacraw Indian chief, Tamachichi, who gave land on the Savannah Bluff to Oglethorpe so his passengers could settle there. This agreement of goodwill meant Georgia didn't face warfare that had threatened other American colonies. Soon after the English arrived, the Yamacraw left to join a more prominent tribe. They believed the bones of their ancestors contained remnants of their spirits. There were two Yamacraw burial grounds in the area we know as Savannah. One is now beneath a parking lot. The other is where Savannah's famous Pirate's House is located. Part of Oglethorpe's master plan for the city included a botanical garden to grow several crops. The only crop that thrived was the peach tree, which led to Georgia's world-renowned peaches. But in 1754, that botanical garden was considered a failure, wasted space. A tavern now known as Pirate's House was built on the space where to this day, it has a reputation as a hotbed of paranormal activity. When the tavern was built, it was a popular spot for sailors and pirates. Many sailors entered the tavern, happy to be on land, had too many drinks, and disappeared. Those disappearances are attributed to Savannah's tunnels. Underneath downtown, along the area where you find Pirate's House today, there's a series of tunnels that were used for illegal activities, such as moving dead bodies and kidnapping drunk sailors, forcing them to work on an unfamiliar ship, more often than not, a pirate ship. It's said that you can still hear captured seamen moaning and wailing for help. The souls of those tormented seamen are not alone in their perpetual doom in Savannah. Georgia's colony charter initially reflected a fresh start where trustees banned slavery that was already thriving in neighboring South Carolina. The trustees openly opposed pro-slavery colonies in the 1730s and 40s, even as they received slaves from South Carolina to construct a majority of Savannah. More and more residents of the colony worked around the ban until it was lifted in 1751. The colony held 16,000 slaves by the start of the American Revolution. A majority of the enslaved, used to clear land and cultivate rice and indigo, 
had arrived in the colony through the port of Savannah, and their labor fueled the economy of the city and private landowners. In March 1859, plantation owner Pierce Meese Butler auctioned 440 enslaved men, women, and children in Savannah. The auction, held over two rainy days, led to hundreds of families being separated in what is known as the weeping time, because the enslaved said it felt like God was weeping over them and their pain. Calhoun Square, situated on historic Abercorn Street, was one of the last squares built in Savannah. The square was named for John Calhoun, a pro-slavery South Carolina statesman. It's estimated around 1,000 slaves were disposed of without coffins around the square, which accounts for its many tales of hauntings and horrific discoveries. In 2000, a gas company planned to demolish a sidewalk to access lines in front of a heritage center. Minutes into the job, the crew unearthed bones that were over 200 years old. Those bones belonged to slaves who had been buried beneath that sidewalk on the square for centuries. This year, the city of Savannah decided it was time to rename the square, formally named to honor a slave advocate. It's now known as Taylor Square to honor Susie King Taylor, a black woman who taught emancipated slaves to read and write. Some of the restless spirits around Taylor Square and many squares in Savannah were victims of the deadly 1820 yellow fever epidemic. In January of that year, a fire broke out in a stable and burned for hours. 463 buildings were destroyed, and at the time, it was the largest fire on record in the United States. A great number of the city's population became homeless. Coastal cities in the South were especially prone to yellow fever in the 18th and 19th centuries before the illness was linked to mosquitoes. The fever was mysterious and terrifying. It would bring on sudden pain. It would start with chills, followed by a fever and sudden, overwhelming back pain. Once jaundice set in, doctors knew the diagnosis. The yellow-green tent to the skin was dubbed yellow fever. Those afflicted with the illness experienced the excruciating pain of hemorrhaging from the mouth, nose, and stomach, and more often than not, death. 60% of the infected died from the disease within a week. Following the Great Fire of 1820, a large number of people were forced to live outside as the hot summer months moved in and with it intense humidity and a growing number of mosquitoes. One by one, people became ill and eventually Savannah had its first major yellow fever epidemic. By September 1820, a tenth of Savannah's population died. One of the most haunting parts of caring for those with yellow fever was that it caused victims to appear to die before they would come back to life, then take their final breath. We now know victims went into a coma, and many would wake up after a long period of time 
just before they succumbed to the illness. As doctors learned more about the course of yellow fever, care was taken to ensure the patients were really dead. But early on, many victims of yellow fever were pronounced dead when they were in a coma. During a yellow fever epidemic, the dead were quickly buried in Savannah's Colonial Park Cemetery, just east of Chippewa Square. We'll never know how many were placed in a coffin and unknowingly buried alive. It's said coffins with scratch marks on the inside have been uncovered from Colonial Park Cemetery, meaning some yellow fever victims endured the horrific pain of the disease and then awoke to find they had been buried before their time and there was no way out. There are 10,000 people buried across the six acres of Colonial Park Cemetery, but today you'll only find 1,000 grave markers. Generations of vandalism left many of those grave markers damaged and unreadable. It's believed vandalism resulted in the body of an American hero going missing in Savannah. Colonial Park Cemetery was the final resting place for Major General Nathaniel Green. Green was second in command during the Revolutionary War. Following his heroic service, he was gifted land west of Savannah, where he died in June 1786. The day after he died, Green's body was transported to Colonial Park Cemetery for burial in the Green family vault. Nathaniel Green was born in Rhode Island. Around 1900, Rhode Island expressed interest in returning their American hero to his home state for burial. When a Rhode Island delegation visited the cemetery, they found the old burial ground in a horrible state. Graves were in disrepair and had been vandalized. The delegation was granted permission to search the cemetery for their native son and eventually found the remains of the American hero in the vault of the former British Lieutenant Royal Governor. The land Green was gifted after the war had been owned by this British Royal Governor, and it's believed the family mistakenly assumed the cemetery vault went with it. Green's marked casket was discovered in the vault along with the casket of his son. The Rhode Island delegation solved the mystery, but the state of Georgia wanted Green to remain in Savannah. The Rhode Island delegation found 23 of Green's direct descendants to petition the state to have the body of Green disinterred and reburied in Rhode Island. But their petition required a voting process among the family, which took time. As the interested parties awaited the vote, Nathaniel Green's body was held in a safe deposit vault at the southern bank of the state of Georgia. In the end, when the votes were counted, a majority of Green's descendants voted to let Green rest in peace in Georgia. Nathaniel Green was laid to rest once and for all in 1902 under a monument dedicated to him on Savannah's Johnson Square. So many unsettling things happened across those six acres of Colonial Park Cemetery. Yellow fever victims being buried alive, the cemetery's reputation as the city's dueling grounds, and the occasional missing body all played a part in the cemetery being dubbed Paranormal Central.
There are countless reports of shadowy figures walking through the cemetery late at night. A well-known ghost seen near the hanging tree in the back of Colonial Park Cemetery is said to be the spirit of René Rondelier. Legend says René was a rather large man who was known as the giant who lived in the cemetery. One night, the bodies of two young girls were discovered. They had been murdered, and the community immediately accused René of killing them. A mob formed and lynched René. In the days following his hanging, neighbors around the square reported a large, shadowy figure, almost giant-like, walking the grounds. If observers have seen a spirit wandering the cemetery, it's most likely not the spirits of René Rondelier, because no one can prove he ever existed. He's listed in no historical records. René is one of the few figures in the haunted history of Savannah who wasn't associated with true events or real people. Most haunted tales are rooted in some truth, even if liberties have been taken to make the story scarier and therefore prey on our fear of the unknown. There are many dark tales of hauntings associated with murder and mystery in Savannah. One of the city's most mysterious sites is the Mercer Williams House on Monterey Square. Construction began on this home in 1860, but was halted by the Civil War. It's been the site of many tragedies since construction was completed in 1868. There was the tragic death of 11-year-old Tommy Downs in 1969. The house was abandoned when Tommy entered it to do something he loved— chase birds. It seems he wandered around the house before he climbed up on the roof, most likely to catch pigeons. Tragically, Tommy fell from the roof and was impaled by the spikes on the iron gate surrounding the house. There are still questions surrounding Tommy's death. He went into the home alone, but what happened on the roof? Did he trip and fall? Was someone else in the abandoned home did they push him to his death? One of Tommy's friends claimed he saw Tommy fall, and it appeared someone, or something, pushed him. But there has never been evidence to prove Tommy Down's death was anything other than a tragic accident. Some people believe there is evil in the Mercer Williams house, and that evil played a hand in the death of Tommy and the deaths of Danny Hansford and Jim Williams. Jim Williams purchased the Mercer House months after Tommy's death in 1969. The preservationists had purchased and restored several homes in the city, and two years after he purchased the Mercer House, he restored it and established it as a place for grand parties. Jim's story was made famous by the book and the movie, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. He was tried four times for the murder of his lover, Danny Hansford. Williams and Hansford had a complicated relationship. They fought often. In the early hours of May 2nd, 1981, the men argued, and Hansford knocked over an 18th century English grandfather clock in the foyer of the home. Williams was in his study when Hansford barged in and pulled a gun on him. Williams claimed Danny Hansford pulled the trigger, but the gun jammed. 
In self-defense, Jim Williams said he pulled out his gun and shot and killed Danny Hansford. Police questioned why Jim Williams waited 30 minutes to call in the death. They theorized Jim Williams tampered with the crime scene to align with his self-defense claim. He was charged with murder and faced four trials before he was acquitted in 1989. Eight months after his acquittal, Jim Williams died of heart failure in his home, in the study where he shot and killed Danny Hansford. Before he died, Jim Williams had sought the help of a voodoo practitioner in the hope of exercising the ghost of Danny Hansford. He said it didn't work, which is why it's believed Danny got his revenge when Jim died in the same room where he had taken his last breath. In the decades since Jim Williams' death, guests at the Mercer Williams house have claimed there is an angry spirit within the walls. They believe it's Danny Hansford, who they feel watching them and hear walking through the house late at night. Angry because he's trapped in the house with the spirit of Jim Williams, whose apparition has often been seen in the study where he died. Experiencing the paranormal associated with the Mercer Williams house doesn't require entering the home. Locals and visitors have witnessed what appears to be a reflection of a ghostly image, a small figure that appears in a window of the house. Legend says it's the reflection of a young boy, Tommy Downs. Jim Williams loved telling stories at his parties. One he often shared was the story of what happened at the Espy House at the corner of Abercorn and East Wayne in Taylor Square. Jim's story is the story told on many ghost tours that make a stop in front of the grand old house. In the 1930s, local judge Carl Espy was involved in shady dealings with bootleggers in Savannah. When the judge's son, Wesley, began dating a rival gangster's girlfriend, the judge was warned that he needed to pressure his son into breaking up with the girl or there would be consequences. Carl ignored the warning. In December 1933, Wesley was discovered beaten to death near the front steps of the family home. His private parts had been cut off and stuffed in his coat pockets. A horrible way to die, which is why it's believed Wesley haunts the Espy house. If Wesley's spirit remains in the house, it's likely due to the fact that the days leading up to his death were traumatic and heartbreaking for Wesley and his family, almost as traumatic as the true story of his death. The Espies were prominent citizens of Savannah, but Carl Espy wasn't a judge. He was a cotton merchant from southeast Alabama who moved his family to Savannah around 1900. Carl did well in business, but he made a name for himself because of his temper. He was known to rule the Espy house with an iron fist. His son Wesley was part of a prominent contracting company known for paving highways in Georgia. He was a deacon at his church, and unlike his dad, was very mild-mannered. By 1933, Wesley was married with children, three sons, and one daughter named for her mother, Catherine. On December 2, 1933, 
Little Catherine was playing in the kitchen of her family's home when she somehow managed to pull a marble top table over. The heavy table landed on the child's head and fractured her skull. She was rushed to the hospital, but six-year-old Catherine did not survive. Just 10 days later, on December 13th, newspapers shared another Espy family tragedy. Wesley was found near the front of his father's house, but he wasn't dead. His private parts had not been cut off and stuffed in his pockets. When he was found, he was alive, but unconscious. The back of his head was bloody. He spent nearly three weeks at St. Joseph's Hospital, in and out of consciousness, never able to coherently explain how he was injured. When 31-year-old Wesley Espy died on January the 7th, 1934, Savannah newspapers shared that it was believed Wesley fell from the high stoop in front of the house and crushed the back of his head when he landed on the sidewalk. By January 20th, a grand jury convened. There were rumors swirling around the city that his father was somehow involved in his death possibly in an effort to benefit from Wesley's life insurance. Agents for the insurance company did investigate the death because the life insurance policy called for double indemnity in the case of accidental death. It was revealed Wesley had arrived at the Espy home late on the night of the incident and wasn't found outside for hours. But there was no way to pinpoint the exact time he sustained injuries or how he was injured whether by fall or by assault. An agent representing the insurance company testified no accidental death benefits were paid out on the policy held by the family. That meant Carl Espy did not benefit financially from his son's death. We'll never know the true circumstances of Wesley's demise, but his spirit is said to linger at the Espy house on Taylor Square, often appearing on that high front porch. The Espy House isn't the only home filled with spirits and mysteries on Taylor Square. The square still has a majority of its original structures intact, making it one of the most unique in Savannah. The Wesley Monumental Church on the west side and Massey School on the southern end. Massey School was constructed in 1855 for the education of poor children in Savannah. It was the city's first public school. The school served mostly poor black children in the early years of operation, and it's connected to one of the most horrifying legends associated with the house at 432 Abercorn Street. The Greek Revival Home was built in 1868 for Benjamin J. Wilson a twice-married Civil War veteran and father of six. Local lore says one of his daughters never left the house on Abercorn Street. There have been reported sightings of the child sitting in a chair in the front window of the home, the chair where she died. Her father, a devoted Confederate veteran, allegedly found his daughter playing with black children at Massey School, Angered that his daughter associated with these children, he tied her to a chair and made her sit at the window at the front of the house for two days. Hour after hour, she was forced to watch other children play 
as she was tied to that chair. It was summer in Savannah, and it said by the second day, she died of heat exhaustion. Benjamin Wilson was overcome by guilt and was said to have taken his life in the home in the exact spot where his daughter died. Visitors have reportedly seen an image of his face imprinted on the exterior of the home, just outside that window where his daughter died. And that isn't the only tragic tale associated with 432 Abercorn. Decades later, in the 1950s, a family visited Savannah and rented the home. One night, the parents went out to dinner and left their four children at the house. When they returned, they opened the door and walked into a nightmare. When they checked on their children, they discovered three of them had been murdered in a gruesome manner. Their organs had been removed, and their bodies were placed in the middle of the room, arranged together in the form of a triangle. Their fourth child was found in another room, frozen in fear in a closet. Legend says 432 Abercorn Street has stood empty for many years because it's owned by the one child who survived and decided to buy the house to ensure no one would live in the place where she came face to face with the reality that evil exists. Evil may exist at 432 Abercorn, but the question is, what is the source? No documented murder ever happened inside the house. There's not a single historical record, no newspaper account of multiple murders inside the home in the 1950s or any decade. Benjamin Wilson did not take his life in the house on Abercorn Street. Wilson increased his wealth when he sold B.J. Wilson & Company, his successful cotton business, in 1871. He moved his family to Atlanta, his entire family, his wife Elizabeth, their three sons, Ben, Edward, and Philip, and their two daughters, Carrie and Mary. Benjamin Wilson's daughters both survived childhood. They married and lived into the 1940s when they were both in their 70s. In February 1896, the Atlanta Constitution shared the news that Benjamin J. Wilson had died at the age of 73. He was visiting Colorado Springs when he suffered a stroke and died days later. We don't know the character of Benjamin Wilson or how such horrible rumors and legends have continued to be shared and associated with his name and his family. It's another mystery that cannot be explained in Savannah. People still visit 432 Abercorn and believe the lore associated with the home and pause before they take a photo. It's because some ghost tour operators will tell you taking a photo of 432 Abercorn will cause your device to lock up or become inoperable, a belief that's been tested by thousands as evidenced by the number of photographs that exist of the home. At night, it is hard to resist the urge to see if something or someone appears in photos of that famous window. And by daylight, the once abandoned home has become one of Savannah's most photographed. It's stunning now, 
It's been renovated in recent years by the new owners, who have received preservation awards. But the owners who live there full-time have reported no ghostly or evil spirits. Visitors still stop by, continue to report negative energy, and share photos of alleged apparitions in the window, convinced there is something unexplained, something evil, at 432 Abercorn Street. Haunted homes across Savannah carry countless stories of loss. The Espy House has two true family tragedies. 432 Abercorn has fabricated tragedies that play on our worst fears. The Mercer Williams House has a tangled web of murder and loss. There's a proverb that says, if you seek evil, you will find it. If you're seeking it in Savannah, some say you'll find it at the Hampton Lilybridge House. Originally situated on East Byron Street, the house was built in 1796 by Rhode Island native Hampton Lilybridge. Following his death, his widow remarried and sold the home. The house often sat vacant and was sold many times, with many an owner selling within a year of living in the house. Some cited intense paranormal activity that made them feel unsafe. In 1963, the Hampton Lilybridge House was purchased by a preservationist named Jim Williams. His decision to move the home to its current location on St. Julian Street is said to have unleashed a paranormal spirit, a force linked to a tragedy when the house was operated as a boarding house. A soldier staying in an upstairs bedroom took his own life in the room. Lilybridge had built two structures on the original property Jim Williams purchased, and Jim wanted both structures moved to the new location on St. Julian Street. Tragically, as workers were preparing to move the second structure, part of the roof collapsed and killed one of the workers. Once the main Lilybridge house was in the new lot, Jim Williams' workers heard strange sounds upstairs when no one was supposed to be upstairs. That was a little unsettling for them, but they said they were tormented by other things, the strange voices and laughter they would hear in the house as they tried to work. Some felt they were in danger and quit. These workmen who did stay continued to experience what neighbors experienced, sightings of shadowy figures in the windows, eerie music and singing, coming from the house when it was empty, which led neighbors to call the police to check on the home many times. Each time, police found nothing. There is a chilling documented account of a worker who went upstairs to investigate a loud noise in an empty room. Fellow workers downstairs realized he had been gone for a long time, so they went upstairs to check on him. They found him lying face down on the floor in the room, visibly shaken, terrified, fighting against a force these workers could not see. They were all unsettled, so they took this worker downstairs. When he was able to talk, he explained that when he walked into the room, he felt as though he had fallen into a pool of ice water. He lost control of his body, felt something push him to the floor, and that something began to push him toward an open chimney shaft 
with a 30-foot drop. He fought back, knowing if this force pushed him to that shaft, the fall would kill him. As quickly as he had felt the cold in the room, the pushing stopped. As he explained this, one of his co-workers mentioned that with all the strange things happening in this house, they needed to have an exorcist come in. All of the men reported that when an exorcism was mentioned, they heard a loud scream coming from the room where the man had been attacked upstairs. Jim Williams was out of country for most of the restoration period. He didn't believe the stories reported by the workers until he decided to make the Hampton Lilybridge house his permanent residence. Living in the house made him a believer in the unexplained. He was often awakened by the noise of footsteps in the room. He described it as the sound of someone walking over broken glass, crunching under their feet. He once saw a dark figure approach him and then suddenly disappear. Jim Williams acknowledged that something was off in this house, and he needed help. He worked with the Episcopal Diocese of Georgia and arranged an exorcism, which was performed on the house on December 7, 1963. For 45 minutes, a priest blessed the house and commanded any evil force within it to leave. But some forces can't be driven away. Within days, the noise, that strange force, made its presence known again. A part of the relocation of the Hampton Lilybridge house that could be associated with the legends of paranormal activity wasn't acknowledged until a few years after the relocation and restoration. When the foundation was being prepared to be moved, workers unearthed a crypt from the colonial era beneath the historic home. Workers sealed it up and reburied it. Years later, Jim Williams suspected that opening the crypt unleashed hauntings at the Hampton Lilybridge house that force that refused to leave Savannah, the city built upon its dead. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. You can find sources for this episode and learn more about the show at southernmysteries.com. And remember, you can join me on Patreon to support the show and hear bonus content at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. Another way to support this independent show and help more people discover it among all the crazy algorithms and podcasts is to rate and review Southern Mysteries where you're listening. As always, thank you so much for listening to Southern Mysteries. Southern Mysteries.